And did you know that this podcast is an independent production? That's right. The Eric Norcross podcast is an indie podcast. And because of that, we depend on listeners like you to help support the show. The best way to become a supporter is to become a patron. Patreon is a membership platform that allows creators to develop a more sustainable source of financial support for their projects. My Patreon supports this podcast. If you find this podcast worthwhile, please consider becoming a patron by heading over to the Patreon link in the description. That's patreon.com slash Eric Norcross. Again, patreon.com slash Eric Norcross, and the link will be in the description. Thank you, and on with the show. Where are you physically located? I'm in Staten Island, New York, which is the, the least bike-friendly borough of all five New York City boroughs. So, we have a lot That's a good start. <laughs> all right. Very good. Um, I have a lot I want to go over, and I don't know where to start. So I guess I'll just start with... Um, yeah, just start at the who, beginning, right? Who are right? you? Who are you? Who are you talking to? Introduce yourself. All right, my name is Jason Slaughter. I run a YouTube channel called Not Just Bikes. Um, and who am I? I mean, I'm a person that's lived in many different cities around the world and uh, has decided, you know, to settle down in the Netherlands for various reasons, which is why the YouTube channel was originally created. Very nice, very nice. <clears throat> um, I used to have my guests introduce themselves, and then I stopped for a while, but, I, but this makes me want to go back to it because it's much easier. Um, why why the netherlands i I am curious about that because it's such a it's not a country a lot of people would think that much about yeah it's a beautiful country though i mean the the thing is um we had lived uh i would lived in canada and i lived in the u.s uh in in california for a while as well um but about um a little less than 20 years ago my wife and i wanted to move somewhere else so we moved to the uk Uh, we lived in london i worked in Cambridge there. We spent some time there. Uh, we had our first child in the UK. Uh, we went to Taiwan, then to back to the UK, to Belgium, had our second child in Belgium. And um, we had traveled a lot as well for business and for personal. So we had seen a lot of different countries. And, and we, we always liked the Netherlands, but, you know, um, never had a chance to live there. Uh, I think the 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 real turning point for us is when after all of this world travel we move back to Canada and the reverse culture shock is a thing like it it really is suddenly you don't fit in to your own culture which is a really strange thing to happen but um we found that after living in all of these places in particular all of these walkable places it was really really hard to go back to a place that is i mean we lived in the most walkable place we could find in Toronto but at the end of the day, it's still quite a car-dependent area. Like, there are many things you could do there without a car if you try to live in the right spot. But you're still going to be limited, and you still have to accept the fact that you're trying to eke out this walkable life 
within a country and a society that is extremely car dependent. And so I lasted about a year. My wife lasted about two years. But after that, we were thinking, well, you know, we've moved back here to Canada. If we're going to move again, it's got to be for the last time, right? Like we got small kids. We can't just keep running around all over the place. And, um, and so that led us down a path of doing some uh, research to look at, you know, where is the best place for us? Because we had been to many different places, but, but, you know, going somewhere as a tourist or going somewhere on business is totally different than living there. And so that ultimately started uh, a lot of research. Um, we then did some longer holidays in a few different cities to stay uh, a longer period of time to try to pretend that we live there, you know, live, stay in an Airbnb in a residential area. And ultimately, long story short, the Netherlands came up on top um, for a variety of different reasons. I mean, the, uh, the cities here are just designed better. Like they, they, um, they went as, as sprawling and car centric as any other place did in the 1960s, but they really started turning it around in the 1970s. And it shows like um, the life that we can live here is just a nicer, more livable life. Uh, the, the biggest thing for us also is that our kids have independence. Because when you live somewhere that's car dependent, you know, you can't get around without a car. And, the, and certainly people who can't drive are children, you know. So they get locked in, this, in these, the area that they live in. And here, I mean, you see kids out all the time. Um, <clears throat> it's just a totally different way to live. And I mean, ultimately, that's where the YouTube channel came from. Uh, the original point of it was to explain to people for exactly the reason you're asking me. Why the Netherlands? Like, what a crazy place. You know, you're Canadian. Why would you go to the Netherlands? So the reason I started it is because I wanted to explain that. So, you know, the first few videos about that, about what it's like to have safer streets, to, to not have a problem crossing the street, to not have aggressive drivers. Um, you know, all of these different things that come from the way that the city is designed. And I think ultimately that struck a chord with people because that a lot of people saw that and we're like, yes, yes, that's what I've been saying all this time. I just couldn't couldn't put my finger on it. So, really, anyway, that that's it. I mean, it's it's a it's a long story about all of the different reasons why we think this is the best place in the world to live. Uh, but ultimately, that's what the YouTube channel is all about. Yeah, I really dig the channel. You know, and one interesting thing um, that I noticed. I mean, there's going to be a few. I have a whole list here. <laughs> but like you, you had some footage of a bunch of bicycles, like a lot of bicycles outside of a school in the middle of winter. Yeah. And none of them had bike locks. <laughs> I just well, they do. They detail. do actually, for what it's worth, they do have bike locks. They are locked. They have what's called a frame lock. So it's a lock that locks around the back wheel so you can't move it. Uh, but yes, you could still pick it up and walk away with it. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was cool. And I also like... I've always been mystified why bikes always got put away in winter. Um, and I remember a couple winters ago, I've always had a city bike key, which is basically yep. you just rent the bike. And every winter they would cut down on the number of city bikes available and they would stop plowing, except for a few bike lanes that are in very, very expensive neighborhoods. They would just stop plowing the bike lanes straight up for yeah. like three months. And Toronto is a similar similar idea. They're get, they're getting better, but you know they have a bicycle network that's not really sufficient. It's just it's not good enough yet, like a lot of cities in North America. 
And then the amount they plow is even a fraction of that already insufficient bicycle network. Um, and, and actually, that was one of the reasons why I made that video, I think, that you're referencing, that um, why Canadians don't cycle in the winter, but Finnish people do, or Finnish <laughs> people can. Um, and I think with, with that particular video, I mean, it does snow here in the Netherlands, but not an awful lot. Uh, it's just it doesn't get as cold as it does uh, even even where you are in New York. And certainly not as it does in, in Canada, which is why I chose to feature a, um, a city called Olu in Finland. And I worked with um, a fellow there who was involved in, um, in winter cycling and making sure that people continue cycling through the winter in Olu. Um, and, I, and I think that's important to note, too, is that it's not just the Netherlands. Like, I, I think people get so hung up when they talk about bikes that they think the Netherlands, oh, it's because it's flat and because the, the weather, I get some people say the weather's nice. They've obviously never been here. They think the weather's nice. But, um, but uh, it, it really does just come down. Every city I've ever seen, it really does just come down to safety and convenience. I mean, that's really what makes the difference. There, there are some other factors. You know, if you're somewhere very, very hilly, it, maybe there are fewer people who cycle. But there are places in... Norway and in um, Switzerland that have 10 times the percentage of cyclists that you find in flat areas of the U S you know, it's just, it's, it's not, it's more than 10 times in some cases. And, and I, and I think it's really, that's what's always lost in this conversation. It really, all the other factors are so minor compared to safety and convenience. That's really all it comes down to. If, if you're not going to plow the bike lanes and you're not going to make it safe, People aren't going to cycle. It's that simple. One parallel, one interesting parallel that I noticed. Um, I, I'm sorry if I'm not able to list every video that some of this data comes from because there's so many videos. <laughs> but at one point, you were talking about how these car-free plazas, which aren't car-free plazas, they are, but they aren't. Um, yeah. Were started coming into existence in the 60s. And I found that very interesting because in the 50s and 60s, on the other side of the pond, they were really going big with big cars, big buildings, wide boulevards, and they were yeah. doing the complete opposite. And I think that that did a lot of damage generation after generation in convincing us that um, bikes are something to look down on. Well, I mean, the thing is, the invention of the automobile was a big deal, right? Like, mm. it's incredibly convenient to drive places, especially if you've only ever walked or maybe taken a horse. <laughs> the car is a big deal. And I think that, um, and I mean, even today, uh, it's often convenient to drive, right? I mean, you're going to stay dry. You can listen to your music. You don't have to interact with anyone else if you don't want to. Um, but I think what kind of happened when you look back into the 40s, 50s, and 60s after World War II in North America, it happened everywhere, though, but especially in North America, I think we got a little bit too excited about this new technology that, you know, this is, this is the era where Canadian and American neighborhoods stopped building sidewalks because the logic was, who the hell's going to walk when you can drive? Like, what, what a silly thing. Like, why would you even do that? And I can understand where they were coming from at the time. But again, I think they just got a little bit too excited about this technology because ultimately the implications of everybody driving everywhere has created a, um, 
has created cities that are what I would just call unlivable. Like there, you become trapped in car dependency. And I, and I think that's where the real issue comes down to. I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with an automobile, but when you have absolutely everybody driving and having no other choice but to drive car dependency, then you bring with it a whole lot of, of social problems with that. And the cities become completely like impassable by any other method. So you, you become literally trapped. It's too dangerous to walk. Distances are too far. It's too dangerous to cycle. And everyone's trapped in, in car dependency. And ultimately, that's what I'm trying to get across in this channel. You know, it's that it's, it's not about cars and bikes and everything else. It's about car dependency. I mean, you can definitely have too much of a good thing. And in all my travels around the world, I've kind of discovered this, um, this universal constant. Like the more car friendly a place is, the shittier it is to be there as a person. Like it's, it's consistent thing everywhere. And I think we need to realize that and say, yes, these cars are incredibly useful tools, but they need to be used appropriately. And we can't design our cities entirely around them because it destroys what there is to be a city. There's nothing left there anymore. It becomes a sea of asphalt instead of a place where you'd actually want to be. Yeah, this is this is why I um, when I initially reached out to you, I mentioned some books, um, yeah, like the Death and Life of Great American Cities and the Power yes. Broker, because this is all the philosophies that they were contending with back in the '60s, and it was just like it, it really was a war between is a city the the vehicular traffic coming through it, or is it life on the actual streets, life on the sidewalks, mm-hmm. and things like that. And, it's it's so interesting that in the 21st century we we're still having this this conversation and this almost this fight for what is what city what sort of city planning is best for our mental health i mean yeah that's exactly why sadiq khan named her book street fight right because you know she's in new york and she's literally fighting over the street about what we're going to do uh, with that space between buildings. I mean, I, I find, um, you know, I, I've fallen into this. It was never my intention to create an incredibly popular urban planning channel. <laughs> that was not where I was going. I was trying to, you know, make some fun videos about why we moved to the Netherlands, maybe to help some people in the same situation as me. My target audience right from the beginning has always been me 20 years ago. So this is what I wanted to teach myself 20 years ago so I could have avoided all of this mess that I went through. So that was it from the start. But I've kind of fallen into this now and become like a spokesperson for walkable cities, which is fine. But it also runs me into so many of the ignorant attitudes that I was trying to avoid by getting out of advocacy in the first place. Because there's, there's just a lot of ignorance about this stuff. And, and I, I don't mean ignorant as in like an insult. I mean ignorant as the meaning of the word. People just don't know. And that... U.S. and Canadian cities, if you looked 100 years ago in the 1920s, you know, apart from the architecture, they would not have been significantly different from the cities in Europe. They were very, very similar. They were generally based around a train station. Most people would walk to where they wanted to go. There were suburbs that you could reach by streetcar. It was, this was the way cities were made. And, and I think this, is, this history 
it's what lost on a lot of Americans and Canadians. Simply because we've been doing this for so long, people think this is normal. Like this car dependency idea is what most people, certainly I grew up with, most people in North America grew up with. We consider this, this is the normal and anything else is, is odd. But when you look at this on a longer timeline, this is really unusual. And that's why Strong Towns calls this the suburban experiment, because this is a giant experiment. This is fundamentally different than the way we've designed cities for thousands of years. Cities were designed uh, organically so that you know they were based around something. And certainly once you get into the railroad era, they were based around a train station or something like that. But in the past, they'd be based around some waterway. And then it would expand out from there, keeping things within walking distance. And then there would be other towns that would also be the same way. So you would go from one walkable city to another walkable town or city by some kind of public transportation. And the idea that we build these massive suburban neighborhoods from scratch all to a final state is unusual. That is, that is the thing that's unusual. It's not the standard, except that we've grown up thinking that way. So we have to look at this as this, this is an unusual thing that we've built only since about the 1940s and 50s. That's what, that's when all this drastically changed. And we have to look at this and say, this was not all a good thing. We threw a lot away by bulldozing our walkable cities. Um, and it's brought with it a lot of challenges to livability, to people's health, to people's physical health and mental health. And I, and I think that's where we need to take a serious look at this and say, this is not the right way to continue. Like we can't keep continuing like this. It's, it's okay to have cars. It's okay to have suburbs, but we cannot live in car dependency. Yeah. I always liked the trams in Munich and I always thought that more cities <laughs> should have those because those were really cool. Uh, at least in the neighborhoods I was in, they were separated from the vehicle traffic. There were yep. like these meridians in the middle. Of, I'm sure you've been there. Um, yeah, I have. I, I wish we had more of those. Well, and, and the sad part is, of course, is that the U.S. had tons of trams. They were all over the place. Um, uh, you know, if you went back 100 years ago, um, I believe it was that Los Angeles had like the, the largest tram network in the world. Was that the red car line? Yeah, the red car line. And yeah. Whether it was the largest in the world or not is a bit irrelevant. It was huge and it was extensive and it was entirely torn up. Um, and there's various reasons for that. Uh, if you go back into the history, it's not entirely a conspiracy theory. There were, there were good and bad reasons why that trim network was torn up, but it was. And, um, and I see that so much when I look through history. It's that passenger rail, trams, all this stuff was just seen as obsolete. It was seen as the the old way of doing things and so throwing it all away didn't didn't seem like a bad thing it seemed like we they were throwing off the chains that were holding them back from the city of the future um but i mean yeah i love trams they're they're my favorite way to get around but again you know i come from um, toronto where it there, there is still a lot of the streetcar network a lot of it was torn out in toronto but much of it still remains but the trams there just 
share the road with cars. They just get stuck in traffic. And that's a totally different experience. And I think people have a very negative, uh, people who live in Toronto have a very negative opinion of the streetcars simply because they are slow and unreliable. But, you know, that's not a fundamental thing about trams or public transportation. That's just the reason. The reasons for that are because it's implemented incorrectly in Toronto. I mean, having public transit that is stuck in traffic behind cars defeats the purpose of public transit. Yeah. And I wonder how much of it, too, is like, uh, this is the conspiracy theorist in me, is <laughs> is there a percentage that's just people aren't thinking thoroughly about it, or is it like deliberate sabotage? <laughs> well, in New I York, think it's a possibility that it's a lot. It's a, a mix of both. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, New York uh, had its fair share of, uh, of trouble there with Robert Moses, who... Um, it certainly, when when you read through the history of it, does did seem to have malicious intentions <laughs> in a lot of cases, oh, yeah. and uh, and I think that's part of it. But I, I think you also have to understand, looking back then, I mean, he was able to get away with that crap because people looked at this and said, "Yeah, I, I want to drive. This is great." You know, you see the 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 images and posters that they they had around in the fifties and sixties of these. Of these futuristic Jetsons-looking cities with these these uh, overpasses and all these cars whisking around, it, it this was the dream, right? Yeah. And um, it it turned out to be more of a nightmare. But you know, I think again, so many people have grown up in this now that they think that this is normal, and that's what I'm really trying to get across with the channel. This isn't normal. And when you've lived somewhere else, and when you've lived somewhere walkable, and in what would be called today a traditional neighborhood. Uh, the quality of life is better. We really did lose something by by paving over our cities. Yeah, I uh, I was thinking about that too. Is why what it takes people the ability to travel, which is not an ability a lot of people have in general to find. No, it's true. Kind of see it. I mean. I grew up on an island off the coast of Maine. To go grocery shopping, I had to take a 45-minute ferry ride plus drive about 20 minutes to the grocery store. Hmm. And then I got to do it again to take all the groceries back. Right. It was a very expensive, time-consuming thing. And when I went off to film school right after high school, I went to Vancouver. I lived in downtown Vancouver for a year. Everything was there. The grocery store, books, what have you, even, even the school I went to was within walking distance and it changed my life. I never thought I'd live in a city. And then once I got back to the States, I'm like, yeah, I'm moving to New York. Yeah. Cause New York of course is really the only city left in the United States where it is possible to live your whole life without a car. Yeah. Um, there are a few places here and there, but they're almost all old places. Yeah. They're almost all on the East coast. Um, not all of them, but most of them simply because they're the places that were built before all of this happened um but my issue with that in north america is that those places are desirable and people are starting to wake up to the fact that those places are desirable and they are now horrendously expensive and the yeah. vast majority of people cannot afford them because of their scarcity um and i think that's really really sad because more people should be able to live like this and what I see happen in the Netherlands is that nowadays, when they build places, 
they still build them that way. They still build places with mixed use development so that you can live close to the shops. You can live close to your work. Um, I mean, that makes the biggest difference of, of anything that we'll talk about is the ability to have those mix of uses. That, well, that was the case until Euclidean zoning came along um, in the, in the mid-20th century. Uh, but they still build those places that way. And, and in a lot of Europe, for what it's worth. Um, they haven't lost that. And there are places that, you know, you, you go to them here, the suburbs here in the Netherlands, and people, Dutch people will, will say, oh, they're so ugly. They don't have any of the, you know, the 17th century buildings or anything like that. And, and yeah, the architecture might not be as pretty and that kind of thing. But these are really nice places. And, you know, like you, you said, you thought you never thought you'd live in a, a city. Well, I never thought I'd live in a suburb. I don't today. I still live in a, in a city. But I've been to some suburbs here that make me think, oh, actually, this is pretty <laughs> nice. Like, you know, this is pretty good. Because for me, growing up in London, Ontario, Canada, a suburb was synonymous with a car-dependent suburb. Like, there, there was no difference there. Um, so that's what I always associated with suburbia with the, the big wide roads, the, the, the big front lawns, the curvy cul-de-sacs, the, you know, the hour-long walk to get to the nearest grocery store. I mean, that's all of the things I associated with the suburbs. But that's, that's not the case. That's, that's car-dependent suburbs, which is, you know, all most people in, in the U.S. and Canada know, but that is not, you know, you can build better suburbs. And I, and I, and I see them regularly here. Can we talk for a little bit about hostility? Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. So you, this is a weird coincidence, or maybe it's not so weird. Maybe it's just an algorithm thing. But I had one of the last videos I watched of yours just prior to us hopping on. You had talked about an, uh, this idea of rolling coal onto mm -hmm. bicyclists. And what popped into my Twitter feed, literally as I was setting up for today's uh, discussion. Now, the incident in Houston, right? Yep. Teen who ran over six cyclists is walking free. He, so I guess he tried to, uh, just trying to put this together in my head. He tried to roll coal on them. The, the operative word is trying, so maybe he didn't succeed. And then I guess he ran him over. <laughs> uh, well, in order to do the Twitter roll coal, thread, you, have, so. you have to hit the, the accelerator. And uh, from my understanding, he hit the accelerator, roll coal, and ended up losing control of the vehicle and running over six people on bicycles. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that story, yeah, I, I've tweeted it as soon as I saw it because it was shocking and yet totally not shocking at all. Um, that one story rolls in so many of the problems um, with, with car dependency. Um, I mean, the fact that a 16-year-old is driving a truck that size is, is one issue. Um, but the fact that there's that hostility towards cyclists. Um, and, I, and I made that video, and I'm not sure if you've seen it, called I Am Not a Cyclist. This is, this is one of the things I really appreciate about the Netherlands. Like, I'm not a particularly big fan of bikes. I don't really care about bikes. Like, lots of people do. That's fine. That's not me. But... It is really nice to be able to ride a bicycle. Like you just feel better when you've been riding around. It's there. It's exercise. It just 
it feels nice. It's enjoyable. It's so much better than sitting in traffic. It's a really nice thing to do. But you can't do that because you're in this hostile car-centric environment in North America. And there's this um, hostility that comes from having to drive everywhere. Because you stop looking at the people around you as, you know, your fellow neighbors and citizens. And they become just another asshole on the road in front of you. You know, this is where road rage comes from. I mean, driving in traffic sucks. Even if you like cars, you have to admit that driving in traffic sucks. And a big part of that problem is that everybody has to do it. Like, you have no choice if you live somewhere car dependent. It doesn't matter if you um, don't want to drive or don't, you know, don't need to drive for the trip you're taking. You've got to drive. You're going to be driving, whether you like it or not. And I think that's one of the things I appreciate, especially when I when I do drive in the Netherlands, is that the only people who are driving are those who want or need to drive. Um, when you take everybody and force everybody into a car and face them, force them all to compete over the same road space, I mean, you will run out of road. It is impossible to build enough road to satisfy the mobility needs of everybody in a city. And that's why traffic is inevitable. Even in small towns in the U.S., you'll get these traffic jams on these four and six lane roads, which is insane because, you know, my my city of, of London, Ontario, has this one four lane um, strode, as um, as Strong Towns calls them, five lane, actually, because there's a center turning lane. And, you know, it gets busy at rush hour. And now they're talking about expanding it to six lanes. I mean, there basically are no six lane roads in Amsterdam. And we have like more than four times the population of London, Ontario. Simply because everybody has to drive and you end up clogging up the roads. And it's a frustrating experience and people get angry. And then when it comes to wanting to carve out something for pedestrians or cyclists, it inevitably has to come at the expense of cars because literally every scrap of space in the city has been given to cars. You know, apart from maybe a small strip of sidewalk, if you have one, every last bit of it, every last bit of the area between buildings has been given to cars. So you can't build anything without taking space away from it. And that breeds this hostility, which is what breeds this hatred of cyclists you know you you look at this you've got this person on this bike and they're just in your way and you're just you're trying to get to where you're going you've been driving through frustrating traffic the whole day you've been dealing with all this frustration and anger that comes from having to drive in a congested city and then you come across these people on bikes and that breeds that hostility it's it's like a it's just a vicious circle um that that happens in in car dependency and and again that's where some of this comes from and then you know you get carving out a small slice of the road cyclists will be given a tiny little strip of paint at the in, in the gutter what i call painted bicycle gutters because i think bike lane is a is a ridiculous term this is a gutter that you're literally giving telling these people to cycle in this painted line in the gutter it provides them no protection at all yeah i always i always comment that they're basically just delivery spaces that you get to use if nobody's making a delivery yeah basically right yeah exactly and and the thing is this space inevitably has to be taken away from drivers but it's it's so insufficient 
it's so unsafe that the majority of people won't use it. So the only people that you'll see riding bicycles in most places in North America are going to be the 20, 30-something, usually men, who are sporty. Um, and, and, and then it also breeds this kind of resentment of like, why are we taking this space away just for these guys, these cyclists? And it, it also builds that, you know, the, the people who, these cyclists aren't your friends and family. They're these other people, these cyclists, because your friends and family, they can't cycle. It's too unsafe. There's, there's no way that, you know, that your mother is going to get on a bicycle in, in New York City or almost anywhere. And again, that, that also creates this, this other group um, that can breed resentment. And all of these things work together to just make a, an environment that's just so hostile to cycling. And, and I think it's really sad because the majority of people in America can't even see themselves as someone who would ride a bike. Like most people know how to ride a bike. There may even be people who will drive somewhere to ride recreationally, but they just can't see themselves using a bicycle for their day-to-day tasks because it just seems like such a foreign concept to them. And it seems so incredibly dangerous. It's certainly if you're out on those suburban strodes, it is factually dangerous. And, and I think it's really robbing people of, uh, of a, a healthy and efficient and um, low-cost way of getting around. Um, and it's... It, I, I, that that story is just so sad, but it it really does speak to all of this. It's all of this together. The, yeah. Anyway, I, I, uh, I didn't get, I didn't get my license until I was in my mid thirties when it was one absolutely not. I couldn't stop. Couldn't resist it anymore because oh, I wow. ended up enrolling in a grad school upstate. Can't bike upstate from here, but um, I noticed right off the bat that just how hostile everyone is behind the wheel and it's not even to bicyclists at least where where i am it's to everyone even yeah other drivers. it really is like you it can, really is moment uh, uh an intersection light turns green if you're not already halfway through the intersection they start honking at you um, even on like a sunday morning drive you can't just go on a sunday drive it's just like, come on, come on, come on. I got to go somewhere. You know, it's like everybody's yeah. in, a, in a hurry to go nowhere, essentially. Yeah. Because we're on an island. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's only so many places you can go. Um, an island that you could probably walk from one end to the other quite easily. But I do it all, all the time. Right. But and, still, most people are going to drive it. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I really appreciate, though, about the current ad- administration here is the mayor does these weekly call-in segments on National Public Radio hmm. where you can call and talk to him. And the bike advocacy community are always calling him every week. What are you doing now to create safer bike lanes? And right. our current mayor, he's on his way out now, but he's, he's made an enormous stride in taking parking spaces out, off the roads and putting in city bike uh, rental I don't know what you call them, kiosks, but um, but then also putting in bike lanes that are separated by a meridian, mm-hmm. which is probably and that makes the all the difference in the world. Do. Yeah, yeah, uh, it is. It is really just a matter of like having a willing taxpayer base who, who's just like happy to do that. Which a lot of the people <laughs> who don't bike, of course, are not happy to do that. Yeah, 
<clears throat> yeah, well, again, it's like, why are my tax dollars going to these cyclists? Um, and that, that's also one of those those ignorant things that I've, I've, I've got myself into, again, that, <laughs> I mean, the mo- majority of people in America think that they're, they're, um, their taxes, their gas taxes pay for the road. And it's, and it's just not true. It doesn't come anywhere close. Um, like, it's not even close. The gas tax hasn't been increased since the 90s. And the vast majority of local roads are financed by property tax or, in some cases, sales tax. So they are simply, it is just not true that the drivers pay for the road. It's, just, it's fundamentally incorrect. Um, but it's something that so many people believe because cars are expensive. I mean, this is true. Cars are very expensive. They are expensive to own and operate. And so you will pay a lot for them. But that doesn't mean that you're actually paying the true cost of it. In America, driving is very heavily subsidized in many, many ways. Um, and this is what Strong Towns gets at when they go through their, their cost accounting of American cities. The car-dependent places just fundamentally do not pay for themselves. Um, but despite that, you know, you'd never know it when you look at discussions of installing something like bike lanes because they're like, why don't, you, why don't these cyclists you know, pay, pay for uh, licensing or something so they can pay for their own bike lanes? Um, it's, it's very frustrating uh, because it's so far off of the truth that I, you know, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it just further demonstrates that people have no idea how taxation works. They have no idea how money is compartmented yeah. and put into to different programs. And I mean, I don't think most homeowners in New York City know that their property tax pretty much exclusively pays for the Staten Island Ferry, which is free for everybody who rides it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, I only came across that because I was eavesdropping on a tour guide one time. <laughs> they don't really tell you yeah, right. how they fi- finance these programs. Uh, I, 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 anyway, I found that interesting. Um, I appreciate that you have your YouTube plaque behind you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's really cool. Is that the 100,000 subscriber plaque? That is the 100,000 subscribers, yes. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when did you hit that? How long after you started your channel? It was about... Um, it's a good question. It wasn't very long. It was a little over a year, if I remember correctly. Um, about maybe a year or two months, three months, something like that. Uh, the growth of the channel has just been absolutely massive. Way beyond my expectations. Because um, when I started, I actually didn't do much research. I think if I had done research, I probably wouldn't have started. Because I would have found other channels out there, like City Beautiful, for instance. It's a great urban planning channel run yeah. by an actual urban planner as opposed to me. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I was just out there to, to tell the story of why we moved to the Netherlands. And what happened was the YouTube algorithm sent it out to Dutch people. And that was never my intention. I never intended Dutch people to watch my content. I didn't think they'd find it interesting because this is just talking about their city. I, you know, they already know all this stuff, I thought. Well, it turns out, I mean, just like, you know, we've been talking here that Americans are completely ignorant about how their city is run and financed. Well, that goes for everybody in the world. Most people never think about this stuff. They never have to think about this stuff. So a lot of people here in the Netherlands who had never lived anywhere else looked at my videos and they're like, I had no idea that was special. I had no idea that was a thing. I had no concept of it. You know, in, in many of these cases, a lot of these people, their only exposure to the United States is 
movies and TV shows, right? So they, they have no concept of what it's actually like to live there, just like Americans have no concept of what it's actually like to live in the Netherlands. And so the channel really took off with Dutch people in, in the early days. And, and that was really eye-opening to me, to be honest. And then in, um, after, after that um, first year, I started uh, expanding the channel because what I had done, I sort of told the story in the first year of why we moved to the Netherlands. I mean, I'm not totally done, but that, the things I wanted to say were said. And so then I started looking at this and said, well, you know, a lot of these insights that I have about why walkable cities are better comes from all of the things I've learned over the years about urban planning. And especially from, uh, from strong towns, uh, the, the nonprofit organization in the U S that is really focused on building better cities in the U S, cities and towns. And so then I started taking the channel and saying, well, this stuff was all new to me over the last 20 years. So it's guaranteed to be new to other people as well. And so I wanted to um, make videos about some of those urban planning fundamental concepts that um, my cat is, is sleeping here. So he's not going to get in the way <laughs> um, that, uh, that there were these fundamental urban planning concepts. And, and what was interesting is that I was a little bit nervous about doing it because I built this channel of at the time, almost a hundred thousand subscribers of mostly Dutch people. I think they were like 60, 70% of the audience at the time. And now I was going to start talking about some of these different concepts around urban planning and around the concepts brought by strong towns. And I actually, again, didn't think they'd be interested, but as it turns out, not only were the Dutch people generally interested in it, um, there were a huge amount of Americans and Canadians that didn't know this stuff either. And, and that has really struck a chord with a lot of people because what I'm here literally every single day from people who email me or DM me or comment on YouTube is that, uh, is that I wasn't the only one that had the feeling that things weren't right. You know, going to these suburban places, you'd always been told of, you'd grow up, you'd have a family, you'd move to the suburbs. This is what prosperity is all about. But it never quite felt right. And I didn't know why. I couldn't put my finger on it. I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it. And, and I hear constantly from people exactly that. Like, wow, this is suddenly crystallized. All of these things I've been thinking for years. I just didn't know how to say it. I didn't have the words to express how I felt about this. And, and that has really taken off. And these days, the majority of my audience is, is American um, and Canadian. And I think Dutch is down to 15 or 20% now. So it's been really, really interesting to see how this has all gone. Because, again, this all just comes from my own life experiences, living in all of these different places and traveling to all of these different places. And, um, and it really opened my eyes to it. And I mean, as you said a little earlier in this conversation, that travel is a luxury that's not available to a lot of people. And it will never be. And so the next best thing I can do is to share my experiences and to show as much of this on video as possible so that, yeah, the best thing is to be here. The second best thing is to see some, you know, non-dramatized um, content that shows you what it really looks like. Yeah, I... Uh... I appreciated you saying earlier how um, you hadn't planned to do 
this a sort of city planning channel because it seems like a lot of the YouTubers I talk to on here kind of got backed into what into the subject matter that they kind of specialize in at this point. <laughs> that's the, the sort of commonality. Is that yeah? That's a common thing you hear. Well, you know, the funny thing is the YouTube algorithm is a black box. Sometimes I think even Google don't know how it works. Um, so you're going to make content and people are either going to like it or they're not. The YouTube algorithm is going, either going to promote it or it's not. And I still to this day have no idea how a video is going to do. Um, and I've, I've seen this since the very early days of my channel. I can spend weeks and weeks crafting a video just to get it just right. And I put it out. Nobody cares. And then I can make other videos that... You know, like the very first video I ever had that hit a million views was my one about garbage day. And I literally made that in two days while I was on holiday in just a couple of hours. And, you know, it, the YouTube algorithm does what it does. And, and, the, and you do kind of get dragged into whatever the audience is, is most interested in. Um, ultimately, I still just try to make videos that are interesting to me. And some of them are going to do well and some of them aren't. And I, I'm okay with that. <laughs> so I'm not trying to chase, I'm not trying to chase the dragon and try to decode the algorithm or anything like that. I'm, we're going to make videos and the chips will fall where they may. <laughs> yeah, I had your trash video on my bullet points, but I figured we'd get to it eventually. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll spend it sometimes a year or more on, on something and then this stupid little cell phone video that I made a couple years ago <laughs> where I just show it was this video I was crossing the street and there was a fire truck that couldn't get past because somebody had double parked and I just videotaped it for like 15 seconds and uploaded it out of boredom and that's the number one video on my channel it's been the number one video on my channel since 2016 and it's really right. annoying because <laughs> you just can't beat it <laughs> I know Oh my God. Oh. Well, I finally broke that. I finally made a video that I care about that became the most popular video. Well, it's getting there anyway. And that my video about Houston, um, mm. that was actually one that I spent a lot of time on and crafted and it had a story that I really wanted to tell. And it actually did well. So I, I think I got lucky there. It finally, the stars aligned. But <laughs> it helps that it's a, a relevant city at this, at the moment, because they, there's a lot of talk about, um, all the flooding as a result of just pavement after pavement, you know, just so yeah. much parking spaces yeah. and the pavement isn't designed to drain. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's a terribly planned city. Yeah. Well, some of those hurricanes, there's no amount of proper um, drainage that would carry that much water. I mean, they've been hit by obscene amounts of water in some of those storms, um, yeah. which is, you know, it, it's impossible to tell for sure, but it's probably related to climate change, which is also being caused by all of those sprawling cities. But, but yes, um, I, I mean, it is it. Uh, water management becomes a huge issue when you've paved over everything. And I think in that video, the, and this was the thing that surprised even me because I was curious, for my own knowledge, if you took Houston and you looked at Amsterdam at the same scale, what they look like. And obviously, I knew that Houston would be big. But it was much bigger than I expected it to be. And what I think is interesting about it is that I put these two circles, one around Houston and one around the equivalent around Amsterdam. And 
it's actually not that different how many people live in those two circles. But the Amsterdam example actually has a whole bunch of farmers' fields and what they call polders, the floodplains, and you know some natural natural areas in between of all of this. So I think that was really eye-opening to me because when you look at these cities from a satellite view, like Houston, it sees nothing but gray because it's almost all roads, strodes, highways, parking lots. And when you look at Dutch cities at a similar scale, there's the city, there's lots of people that live there, but there's also lots of green areas. And it's funny because I get people who uh, don't know anything about this and they'll say, oh, this is all a bunch of garbage. I don't want to live in this uh, European concrete jungle stacked on top of one another. And it's really not like that at all. Like the cities here generally don't have tons of skyscrapers. I don't actually have a problem with skyscrapers. I, I kind of like them. Like my parents used to live in Hong Kong and I loved it. But there aren't a lot of skyscrapers here. There's a lot of mid-rise buildings. Um, and it all feels very human scale. The streets are much more narrow. Uh, but that feels nice. You know, now you can have trees at the side of the road that, that come up and touch at the top, the kissing canopies, they call them. And that, that's nice. And so you have this city that actually feels really nice and enjoyable to be in. And I can cycle for like 10 minutes and be out of the city. And I mean, there's an end to the city. The city ends. And then there is the polders or the forest or the farms. And they're very close to me. And I think about when I live somewhere like Toronto, just how long it takes me. You know, I can go to a park, but how long does it take me to get out to the end of the city? And it can sometimes be hours of driving, especially if there's traffic. And, and it's amazing. It, I think it's this whole thing. It really turns it on your head because from the North American point of view, you think of these cities as these big bustling metropolises that are just, you know, way too busy but a lot of times that's busy because of just cramming too many cars in there right um but what these compact cities also allow you is getting access to nature easy easily very easily actually like uh, the first time it happened to me was very funny i was cycling to uh to our accountants uh who are in a suburb of amsterdam called amstelveen and i was i had been in the netherlands for a few months and I cycled there and I decided to take a slightly different route. And I literally ended up next to cows on my way to the accountants in the suburbs. And it was just like mind boggling to me. I'm like, I just cycled to a farm and there's cows here. There's literally cows right here on my way to the accountants in the suburbs. And there's something to be said about that. There's something to be said about compact cities that don't just pave over all of the nature. It really is a lot different than what most Americans would associate with a city. Like, you can have density, and it's still very, very livable. Yeah, I'm trying to think now how long it would take me to get the cows from here. Yeah, right? I'd probably have to drive at least three hours. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so it just boggled my mind that I accidentally cycled to cows. <laughs> That's a good story. Oh, I uh, I wrote this comment down that uh, one of your uh, subscribers left. 
B.B. Olin wrote, Okay. It's amazing how many people are brainwashed into thinking anything to help improve their country is considered communism. <laughs> I love that comment so much. Because <laughs> it's yeah. it really is the knee-jerk response. Oh, you, you want to help somebody? You're a commie. Yeah. I, that's a very uniquely American thing. America has this, <laughs> this funny history with, with communism, <laughs> the Red Scare and all this stuff. But it's it's become this like a ridiculous meme at this point, like calling l- like literally anything that's not fascism is now socialism. Right. Like it's 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 ridiculous. Words don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I get that all the time. I actually it, on YouTube, you can add like blocked words uh, that put stuff in the in the spam filters so I can manually review them. And I had to put in like you know, socialism and communism and these words because they, they just get thrown out by the most insane people ever. Uh, they're just they're just talking nonsense um, because words don't mean things to them. Like, <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's ridiculous to me to, for these people to say that the, the things I'm talking about in the Netherlands are communist. I mean, the Netherlands is a neoliberal country. I think actually too much. If we, I don't want to get into Dutch politics, but like the the ruling party here is a center right party that is neoliberal to its core, and it's just totally not that. It's just that uh, America is just so separated from, you know, policies that would be completely normal on the right wing and the left wing just become socialism. Uh, it's it's crazy. Yes. Words don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, actually, that reminds me, I keep meaning to go into my own settings and I, cause I have these, this political, uh, driven film from the two thousands that's on my channel where I keep getting people popping in with their, their left and right conspiracy and accusations. That, and so I think I'm just going to like put in the, the party names as if they drop Democrat yeah. or Republican into a comment, I have yeah. to prove it. I actually did that, that same thing. Um, because, because the thing is, like, on one hand, politics and urban planning are very tightly intertwined. Like, you really cannot separate them. I know there's like, there's some other channels out there that um, bring up the politics a lot more. Like, there's a channel called Adam Something who is very clearly a leftist and he brings those politics into his urban planning discussions and people are like, oh, you got to keep the politics out of this. And to an extent, I don't agree. You have to. The politics are fundamental to this because uh, people just don't realize how much of the way their city is is entirely because of decisions made by politicians. Like, I get this all the time. No, we do this because we like our cars or this is car culture or this is the way we are. It's really not. It all comes down to regulations. But um, at the same time, if you're if I'm making a video that doesn't mention anything political and it gets a bunch of people talking about Democrats and Republicans, it's 95 percent of the time that is in bad faith. (laughs) It really is. Um, And it's especially funny when I get those comments on the Strong Towns videos, because Strong Towns was started by a group of fiscal conservative uh, card-carrying Republicans. They, I, I mean, and actually, I think this is 
to a fault. I, the one of my criticisms of Strong Towns is they they tend to be too money focused. Like they're really all just about the money. Now it is expanding as as their movement expands and they include people from all over the political spectrum. But it's hilarious to me to have people telling me that Strong Towns is communist or socialist. I mean, they are literally fiscal conservatives. That is, that is the entire angle they come from. And that's one of the reasons I like them, because they come to a lot of the same conclusions that I did from my personal experiences in living in these places. They came to the same conclusions about how cities should be built entirely from financial considerations and nothing else, which I think is interesting. I'm just resetting my camera. Yep. Um, oh, yeah, I wanted to ask you. Um, you you made a video where you uh, included some clips from a politician. I don't <laughs> know who it was, but he said... Rob Ford. Yes, I have smoked crack cocaine. <laughs> His name is Rob Ford. Rob Ford. So he's the former mayor of Toronto. Exactly. <laughs> he is. Uh, he was quite a character. He he died uh, a few years ago. Uh, but his brother, Doug Ford, is now the premier of the province of Ontario. Um, but yes, <sighs> I was not a big fan of Rob Ford. A lot of people weren't a big fan of Rob Ford. Um, I when I when I make fun of Rob Ford for smoking crack cocaine, I am not making fun of addicts. I'm making fun of Rob Ford because yeah. he was a dickhead. He was he was an antisocial, sociopathic dickhead, um, and I just didn't like him. What was <laughs> and he he also was famous for saying like um, uh, cyclists deserved it when they got run over. Uh, he he was that he brought that toxic, like absolutely useless discord. Um, that was completely toxic uh, to the discussion in Toronto because he would say cyclists deserve it when they get run over. Uh, the quote was something along the lines of that uh, the roads are for cars and trucks and buses. Notice that he doesn't say streetcars because <laughs> he hated streetcars because they were in his way of his SUV. Um, and then he said, if you're swimming with the sharks, you deserve what you get. You know, that that's not useful at all. And that plays into exactly what we were talking about earlier with this us versus them. It provides absolutely no benefit to the discourse and only poisons the waters. Like nothing gets better with talk like that, well, which is was, why I hated the guy. I've never been to Toronto, but what was the vibe of the population there at the time? Why, 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 what was the rationale for people electing him? Well, it's, it was entirely by the suburbs. So Toronto, um, I'm, it's a very long story and it's going to be one of my videos someday about the history of how this all happened, but Toronto was um, uh, a downtown Toronto area is very urbanized. And um, up until the 90s, they were their own city. So what we would call now downtown Toronto or old Toronto was a city called Toronto. And and there were suburbs around it, Etobicoke, um, North York, Scarborough, and Toronto. And... um, Due to political reasons by the Ontario Conservative government, they wanted to merge those groups all together. And there were various reasons given for that. They said it was cost-saving measure. It, it, it wasn't. It didn't end up saving costs. But um, 
they combined all of these the the Toronto and its suburbs into one big city called Toronto. Uh, that what they called the mega city, what I called the megacity. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, what this did, and and certainly part of the uh, the things you'd hear at the time from in conservative circles, the real reason they were doing this was because Toronto, like most big cities, is highly financially productive. You know, this is this is all the stuff that Strong Towns finds. These these downtown cores are incredibly financially productive. And so then they get a lot of power. And uh, also what is typical is that people who live in live in cities tend to be left leaning. And Toronto was becoming a highly influential left leaning political power in Canada and certainly in the province of Ontario. And they wanted to expand that to the suburbs, which were more conservative. And when you see the results of the votes for mayor, ever since that time happened, you see the very clear split between that old Toronto and its suburbs. And when you look at the map of districts who voted for Rob Ford, it is entirely a a core that didn't vote for him, surrounded by a ring of people who did. And... Ever since that time of the the megacity in the 90s, Toronto has been um, basically run by its suburbs. Um, that the, the political power has shifted to the suburbs. And that is slowly changing now because the population, the, the, the city has exploded just so much and it has urbanized just so much that some of the power is starting to come back to some of the political power is starting to come back to downtown. Um, but... Uh, that's really where that came from. And Rob Ford was a direct result of that decision to combine um, Toronto with its suburbs in, in the 90s. How does, how does his brother compare as a leader? Well, Just he doesn't smoke crack. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of the guy. Um, I'm really not. And, and actually, I'm not a fan of him because I have met him in the context of he has the similar um, opinion um, of cyclists as as his brother did. Uh, you know, these guys were um, they're, they're your typical uh, kids, born rich, given their dad's company. You know, think that they're hot shit, and yeah. I just yeah, not a fan. But um, but I'm not going to go into the politics of of uh, <laughs> Ontario yeah, yeah, no, Canada okay, here. Okay. But it's not our our expertise. <laughs> um, that's a whole nother episode. Yeah, indeed. Well, I can come back on sometime and talk about that. <laughs> so, okay. So I just have one, one more question about your aesthetic choices, and then we can just do some uh, housekeeping with the podcast. Yep. Um, early In your earliest video that I could find, you appear on camera, but now you yes. largely just voiceover. Yep. Why the transition to not appearing on camera anymore? And I mean, you so have a, a wonderful That was voice. intentional voice. from the start, actually. Um, the reason I showed my face in, in the first scene of my first video is that nobody would ever ask me for a face reveal. That was the, the purpose of that. So that it's like I showed my face in the first scene of my first video, I'm done. Um, but my, my original goal was that I would have these kind of like intros where I would be on camera. And then I would show the street. Uh, the reason why 
I didn't want the talking to the camera, even right from the start, if it's a short clip at the at the beginning and it and interspersed throughout that video. Um, the reason for that is because ultimately I'm here to show people things. And I don't think it's useful to show me talking about it when I could be showing you the street. Mm. And that's been my fundamental opinion on that from the start. So I was planning to have funny intros that I would act out. The only one that remained was continuous sidewalks, where I said, by the end of this video, I hope to get you excited about sidewalks. I was planning on having kind of comedic intros on all of them, but I've tossed that away because I thought, really, the point here is that I'm trying to show you something. So it's not like I'm hiding from the camera, um, but it's just that, that that's not my goal. What I try to do with my videos is I try to show you what it actually looks like. Because again, it goes back to this idea that most people can't travel like I have. So the next best thing is to show you the way it is. But you'll also notice that I don't have any music in my videos, for instance. Um, partially because the DMCA is a steaming pile of crap. But also because I don't want to do things cinematically. I actually... Um, once I did my first year of videos, I started learning more about video editing because I thought, oh, damn, I'm actually going to have to do this stuff. Now I have an editor for what it's worth, which is great because he knows what he's doing. But when I started learning more about editing, I looked up online how to do things cinematically. And then I did the exact opposite intentionally. So my videos are not cinematic and they I do not want them to be cinematic. So I don't want you know, your speed ramps and your zoom overs and your and your music playing and nothing wrong with those things. But that is the opposite of what I want to do, because what I don't want to happen is I don't want people to think that this is fake. I don't want it to feel like a movie because movies are not real. Right. Um, movies are telling a story and I ultimately want to show you the way it is. So the other thing is a lot of my footage is boring in the sense that I am just pointing the camera at the street. I do very few pans. I do very few zooms. I'm just literally pointing the camera at the street and talking over it. The reason for that is because I want people to feel like they're standing at the side of the street and looking at what I was looking at because I want them to experience it as much as possible. So it, it came down to everything, even down to the color grades. I tried to not do cinematic color grades and I tried to make things look very realistic. Um, and as I've been buying better camera equipment, other than, you know, I started filming everything on a GoPro, uh, I've been trying to specifically get things that look real, that are not cinematic. And, and it's kind of funny because everything you look at online from anybody trying to learn anything about film, they're all trying to get that cinematic look. Yeah. And I'm trying to do exactly the opposite of that. So that's where the style decision comes from in all of this. So by by avoiding cinema, you created your own film aesthetic which now i 100 percent believe people are going to end up trying to copy <laughs> maybe i mean this is also why i film in 50 frames a second or 60 frames a second because you don't do that you know you do 24 frames per second in cinematic because you want it to feel cinematic and you know 60 frames per second feels fake yeah. well fake if you're acting but it feels real if you're looking at something that's actually real and so, again, that's a decision I make. 4K60 for a lot of my videos or 4K50 in Europe um, to make it look like you're actually there. Now, that's the, the subconscious thing I'm trying to get across. Uh, whether it works or not, we'll see. But, yes, I guess I've created 
uh, my own style there of just anti-cinematic. <laughs> yeah, now we get, we're going to have to come up with a name for it at some point. Anti-cinematic's yeah, the key. Uh, I, I will leave, uh, yeah, I'll leave that to people like you that know more about okay. film than me because I know nothing about this stuff. <laughs> it, you said 50 frames in a year. Did they play, they play it at different rates on YouTube over there? Uh, well, you can upload to YouTube at any frame rate you want. Huh. Video compression is actually one thing I know very well because I used to work in that industry uh, for many years. I used to work at the company ATI. They make Radeon graphics cards, and I worked in their multimedia department using um, GPU hardware to hardware accelerate H.264. So that's something I know. <laughs> so I know all the technical stuff about how YouTube does this. But yes, um, in Europe, it's 25 frames per second for television. It's it's 29.97 in in um, North America for NTSC. And when they do um, high frame rate, they just double that. So in Europe, it's 50 frames a second. And in uh, in North America, it's that horrible 59.94, which is just why can't they make it 60? I know why they I know why they didn't. I just wish they had just made the leap to 60. But anyway, well, when- 59.94. Back in like the early 2010s and the late 2000s, there was this format called HDV where you could record HD video on those little mini DV tapes. Yep. And you would select 60 frames per second, but it was really just 59.9. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's double of NTSC. And the reason NTSC is not 30 frames a second is because it was 30 frames a second for black and white, but they added the color information in the side which they had to reduce the frame rate in order to store. So mm, when we got Color TV, it went from 30 frames a second to 29.97. And then instead of fixing that mistake, when we went to HD, we just doubled it. <laughs> it drives me nuts. <laughs> but so don't get me started, man. Don't yeah, get me yeah, started no, on, on video stuff, man. I could talk all day about that. <laughs> Thank you for talking with me. I really appreciate it. I love your channel and... Um, I love that this subject matter is so successful in the 21st century when we need it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, that has been, um, really, really nice to see that people are actually interested. I knew I was interested in it, but it's great to see that there's so many other people out there that are interested in it as well. Um, so maybe there's hope for us yet. Thank you for listening to my podcast. If you have a moment, please consider subscribing to the show wherever you listen. And if the app allows for it, please leave a rating and review. That way, the algorithm moves us up in recommendations. It's a great way for new listeners to find our show. Thanks, and I'll see you on the next episode.